What's going on, everyone? Hope you're all staying sane during these winter months. Hope everybody's getting a little bit of riding in. Um, this is Snakebite Podcast number eight, and it's brought to you with the help of the fine crew over at digbmx.com. Um, I was just over on the site a few minutes ago watching the new Kink Intervention trailer. And to be honest, I'm really excited for some fresh Doyle, Hamlin, and Albert Mercado footage, so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, today I sat down with Haro brand manager John Bolgens to talk about Haro bikes, kind of their history, uh, the path that brought him there, and why dudes will pay 250 bucks for a pair of vintage Oakley grips. So sit back and enjoy. So yeah, I'm, we're hanging out here, Harl. You and I are. I've definitely been walking around for like an hour, like just nerding out on bikes. Totally. Um, yeah, one of the main reasons I wanted to come over here and talk to you is just kind of, in my eyes, kind of. I feel like in the past few years, you know, I feel like, and I think, you know, even being a shop owner, I've seen a resurgence in people being excited about like Haro again. You know, and I, you know, as a dude that's rode BMX for a long time, you know, when I was younger. You know, it was Haro, you'd be like Haro GT. I mean, those were the two main companies. And, you know, when you were little, you pick your sides, you know, with, yeah. you, with your friends, depending on which pro you like. And, you know, Haro, I felt like, held strong for a long time. And then I feel like maybe around 94 or so. And I don't know if that's, I don't know the timeline exactly. I know Bob, I think, sold the company in 89 mm-hmm. and stayed on as the president for a few years. 91, 92. Yeah, and I feel yeah. like really after he left, maybe his vision or just how Haro went kind of lost its way. And I feel like instead of trying to be the best BMX company out there, and I know you guys were one of the first real deal kind of mountain bike companies too, but you guys kind of, it kind of went to the point where you were thinking, you know, I don't know, it just kind of was like, we're going to be a big bike company in general. Yeah. And I feel like, everything you know kind of lost its way Mm -hmm. and then in the last few years it feels like it's kind of getting wrangled back in and you got the vintage stuff but even even let alone with the vintage stuff i even look at the new stuff and i'm like this is this is real again this is real i have i have kids that come in the shop that that ask for stuff you know where i don't think in 2001 you know a core kid would have probably there are kids, but, you know, would have came in and been as focused on a certain part or something, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, yeah, I just want to know, I know I know you've been brand manager now for how long? Uh, for three years now. For three years? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do, do I seem like I'm on or am I <laughs> off a little? Man, or? you just, yeah, you just uh, covered... 30 years, I guess, of history. <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I was just trying yeah. to think in a broad spectrum, but, like, it does definitely feels like there was a, a lost your way no, thing sure, for a minute. No, totally. Um, you know, I felt it myself. Yeah. Being a consumer. Um, I mean, I was a massive Harrow fan in the 80s. You know, loved everyone on the team. Um, Hoffman, obviously. Yeah. Blyther. Um, Dominguez, right early on. And, uh, you know, there was Wilkerson, DMC. I mean, it was just a stacked team. Harrow, to me, always had the best riders. The only rider that wasn't on the team was Dave Volker. Yeah. Back then. Uh, I was just like, man, absolutely amazing. Um, but you're right, about 92, I also 
felt there was a change. Yeah. I didn't know politically. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, it just felt. It just different. felt it was different. It was different. They had lost its way, and that's when I got my Dino Slammer because I saw Dave Volker was absolutely killing it with massive fakey wall rides. Oh, he, he, how he was a if he still is a beast, but I mean, oh yeah, gosh. I mean those fakies just blew my mind. So that was probably the reason I got a Dino Slammer. Yeah, um, I was over. You know, yeah, we all broke bikes back then. Yeah, I mean Maybe bikes are made in the same factories, most of them anyway. Yeah, there's like five factories over there. So if you're going to break a dyno, you're going to break a harrow, you're going to break a GT. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in my mind, I saw that kind of riding. So I wanted to ride like that and I changed um, to dyno. But uh, that harrow change, um, it was, it was, it was Bob leaving. I think the passion sort of left a little bit. Yeah. Jim Ford was still here. Um but uh, yeah, it was almost through the '90s that you saw it, it was becoming a bit quirky. And it wasn't—it wasn't like I mean, after '94, I mean, I think you guys still had like Lee Reynolds and stuff before yeah. Lee got hurt. And then I remember Hoffman came on. I mean, not Hoffman. Mira came on right after Hoffman. So it's—it's it's not like you still didn't have amazing riders. Yeah, it was just. I mean, BMX was such a fast forward then too, with like all the smaller companies doing frames and stuff but yeah it definitely just did seem quirkier and mm -hmm. you were just like what's going on you know like yeah I mean we all remember the mid 90s yeah uh, I mean I left Scotland and moved to Australia in 95 and it was it was a weird time for BMX I think that's when what sprocket jockeys were going on yeah. the BS series was going on um, and the, there was yeah real emphasis on rider owned companies um, the only big company probably going at that time was was GT. Yeah, that was doing really and well. And GT's bikes got horribly kooky too. Yeah, totally. I mean, like where you're like, I can't even buy this bike because the dropout comes out to a point, mm -hmm. and we're grinding. Yeah, I I can't ride this. Thing. You can't even hold on a rail or hold on a yeah. ledge. Like the bikes weren't really thought through. Yeah, with the design on what the riding was at that time. And do you think? with the companies do you think it's maybe they pulled in designers that were from outside of BMX that were maybe more mountain and road and they're just like oh BMX bikes are goofy let's just keep making yeah, them goofy I would, or I would say so I mean you know even even at Harrow there you go back and there was some riders but a lot of it was taken from you know the mountain bike side or the road bike side yeah and I think yeah we were talking about that before like you know big companies like Specialized had BMX Trek had BMX Gary Fisher and Gary stuff. Fisher um, and you saw them and they did all have the big dinner plate dropouts and things like that and they really weren't looking at what BMX was at so thinking about it I wonder how many companies brought in their athletes and saying what do you need I don't feel you like know, very many did. And I don't I, think they did. That's why standard. I mean, I was riding standard in '95. Yeah, I was riding. I think an S and M dirt bike. You know, yep. like, and I, I always felt bad for kids during that time because when we were younger, I could go get a, a complete GT or a Haro or General mm -hmm. or whatever, and it looked like the bikes I saw in the magazines. Yeah, I was like, this is what dudes are riding. Mm -hmm. I can show up at the local ramp. No one's going to look at me weird. I can just be like, okay, I'm here to ride. Yep. In the early 90s to even, I mean, mid 90s to early 2000s, a kid would show up on like a Gary Fisher, mm -hmm. specialized fat boy. Yeah. And it was just like advertising like, hey, I'm new to this. Judge me. Yeah. I'm going to suck really bad and this bike doesn't ride very well. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it was a shame even seeing like the you know GT and Haro even in in that group and for that a minute. Mix. Yeah, totally. And uh, so what 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 happened like when you came in? Like, I mean, I know that like, we're fast forwarding to a few years 2012, ago. Two thousand twelve. Yeah. yeah. How did how did you take steps to being in the position that you are right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was one of those those guys that started my own company as well. Yeah. What and what, what so company? That, that was Pilgrim. Okay. Pilgrim BMX. And uh, I mean, yeah, it was great. It had uh, you know Stevie McCann, Vince Byron, yeah, um, Jed Milden did the triple backflip, yeah, on the Pilgrim, uh, Jay Tui, Adam Louise over here, yeah. There was a lot of good riders on it. Um, but even at that time, I was, it was weird. There's me owning my own company, and I was buying all these Harrows. Yeah, I was rebuilding the history of Harrow, whilst I'm running my own company. Yeah. in Australia. And it was really weird. I knew Jim Ford. I knew Tony Daglaro. Um, I knew the guys over here. I knew the team really well. Yeah. I've known Colin McKay since 95. Um, and so a few people were saying... Um, actually, Alan Cook was in the position at that time. Yeah. And uh, he resigned. So this would have been, I think, March March or April 2012. Yeah. And um, I get a phone call from the Australian distributor of Harrow. Steve Paraskevius, and he said, and he called me, and he said, John, your your dream job has just come up, and I'm like, I don't need a job, I've got my own company. Why are you calling me? Yeah. And he goes, you know, the brand manager of Harrow, Alan Cook has resigned. I think you're the perfect man, and I'm like, so I'm getting goosebumps right now because I remember this phone call, and I'm just like, a thousand things went through my head in probably ten seconds. Yeah. And I'm going, yeah, I'll do it. So how did, did, so, did you just contact um, somebody over here? So yeah, Steve contacted Joe Hawk, the president yeah. of Harold, the CFO, um, at the CEO, and uh, said, this is the guy. And Joe had briefly met me the year before, because mm-hmm. Alan Cook introduced me to Joe at uh, Taipei Show yeah. in 2011. And Alan said, this guy knows more about Harold than anyone at Harold. He's got the biggest Harold collection in the world. And Joe's like, hey, how you doing? And, so he sort of remembered that. So when Steve Paraskevis contacts him from Australia, saying the Scottish guy is a freak for Harold, he is your next brand manager. And Joe's like, whoa, he's in Australia. Like, you know, can't really just bring him over. Um, but let's talk. Yeah. So we talked on the phone and everything else. And, and basically he said, look, you know, I've spoken to the shareholders. Um, they want me to find an American for this job because it's going to be too hard to bring you over with the visas and everything else. So, yeah, you know, you're the guy, but we can't put that on the line. And that, um, pro- I mean, it, and that, so did to, you that feel really unfair at that moment? Yeah, I mean, it felt unfair, but I, you know, when you really believe, you know, you're going to hit a ramp or you're going to do something in life. You're going to walk down the aisle to meet your wife, whatever. You know 100%. You're just like, this is it and it's perfect. Yeah. So at that point, my mouth spoke before my brain and I just says, can you see me next week? And he's like, John, they, they won't fly you across. I said, I'll fly myself across for an interview. He said, I believe I'm the man for this job. Will you see me next week? Yeah. And I think this was the Thursday or the Friday uh, this was in April 2012 and he goes yeah yeah okay I said alright 
I'll be there Wednesday. So it cost me $2,100 to go to my own interview. So I flew myself from Melbourne, Australia to Los Angeles, picked up a hire car and drove down um, to Vista. Come to Harrow and everyone's just like, this guy's a cook. Like, who pays to go to their own interview? I mean, people wouldn't fly from San Francisco to come down to to San Diego to go to their own interview. They'd want paid. Yeah. And I'm paying $2,100 to go to my own interview. And it was because of the belief of this brand that I knew this was my calling. All the years of writing in BMX, starting my own brand, my influence was always... Harrow just sparked something in me. And so I flew across, spent the Wednesday here, the Thursday we actually went up because the freestyler project was just starting then with yeah. Tom Phipps and uh, Tr- Johnny True Torch. So went and checked out a few things there. Went to Vans because we were just talking about the Van Shoe collaboration and I had a little bit of input with Jerry Badders on that. And Jerry's like, holy, like, I seriously can't believe you're here. Like, you're Scottish John. Yeah. <laughs> and you're talking like this. This is incredible. Um, so that was the Thursday this is all an interview but we're cruising about just as if I worked here yeah and then the Friday spent spent the day with Joe Hawk and everyone in the office and um, I remember I walked out in this car park went out to my hire car and I just said you know Joe am I, am I what you're looking for and he goes a whole lot more <laughs> yeah and, uh, and that was it and I drove away Went up to Xavier Mendez, stayed with him for a couple of days and flew back to Australia that Sunday night. Yeah. So I was here for five days. And so I, I knew the interview went well, but the visa process was going to be difficult. And it'd be difficult for him to convince, I mean, I don't the even know anything about shareholders or anything, but yeah. it's that, that's a whole world that I don't even know about, but I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, this is a massive company. We sell to 80 countries around the world. So, you know, we have a board of directors yeah. that invest into the company of Harrow. And so he's put it out there and went, this guy knows more about Harrow. I mean, Bob Harrow wrote in a letter that I knew more about Harrow than Bob did. Yeah. Like, um, so I'm, I'm actually up at Xavier's and I'm just like, man, this is, this is where I'm getting stuck. And whilst I'm talking to Xavier about, you know, my visa and how am I going to prove, I don't have an education. I was thrown out of school at 15. Yeah. I'm just passionate about BMX. And so as I'm talking about this, Kerry Mendez, Xavier's wife, walks into the kitchen. And she, she just goes and makes herself a coffee. Oh, I know an immigration attorney. And I'm like, and Xavier and I are going, yeah, Kelly. I'm like, what? So we make a phone call to Kelly. I'm only in the country five days. Yeah. I'm sitting in his house in Rancho Cucamonga. And so she phones Kelly and goes, you know, this guy... He knows everything about BMX. He knows everything about Harrow. He owns his own brand in Australia. Um, he works in Asia. He's worked with all this. And Kelly's like, cool. Yeah, I can get him in. So I had to go then, you know, get the visa, do everything, prove. And Harrow waited for me. They waited six months for me to get in the country. Um, I know there was other people. And there was other pro riders that went for the job. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they waited for me until yeah December it was I got here in December 2000. of 2012 yeah so that started in yeah April so what's that May, June, July August, September October so eight months 
they waited eight months without a brand manager here. Wow. So they could get... I mean, in a company this big, it's, I mean, it's hard not having, you know, yeah. the lead, you know? Exactly. Um, but that spoke wonders to me. I mean, I'm amazed the shareholders let Joe pull it, pull it off. Well, I mean, go that long without a brand manager. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, uh, they saw something, I guess, um, that they didn't see in others. So when, when you came into the company at that time and you walked in yep. and you'd see, seen how things going, was everybody on board for this new vision you were kind of had for the company or was it? There was, so yeah, um, I mean, even I'll go back to April and then jump straight to December. But yeah. In April, in my interview, I didn't tell him anything nice. I didn't tell Joe anything nice. I said, you have lost your vision, your passion. There's no innovation in Harrow anymore. Yeah. I said, you're copying every other brand. I said, we need to stand on our own two feet and be the brand we once were. I said, we've lost direction over the past 10 years. Bring it back. Have people chase us and want to be copying us and what we're doing because we are the leader of product innovation. We yeah. once were. We can do it again. And so that's what I said in my interview. And then moving forward to December, I came in with that. And, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to talk about this because I'm not trying to diss anything or anyone. Oh, no, no, yeah. But everyone was used to doing what they're doing. And that's just it. And it's perfect. And I came in and I'm like, dude, what does this mean? Like, there's products called numbers. Before it was F1, F2, F3, like freestyle series. And then it went to 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. I'm like, I wanted to give a personality back to the bikes. And I felt that emotion. If you're going to buy something, you buy on emotion. You don't buy on price. Um, I wanted my Camaro. And that was emotion. I didn't look at the price. I just wanted that Camaro. Yeah. Um, when I saw it in Transformers movie. Although I didn't want, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't want the yellow one. And, but that's emotion. Yeah. And I said, I want to get that emotion back in the brand. That people want to buy the bike on emotion, not and, on price. And I, I feel like when people talk about BMX bikes, it's one of those items because you usually get it, you know, maybe you know, right before you hit puberty, that people are so emotionally attached to. People that aren't even real BMXers will see a bike and still freak out about it because they're emotionally connected to that first bike because it was their first piece of freedom to the neighborhood, their first escape, you know, from the family to be their self and an individual. So people are so emotionally connected yeah. with a BMX bike. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I have bikes in the shop and people walk in and you'll just see them beeline to a certain bike yeah. and be fixated by it. And I'm like, do you ride? And they're like, oh, no. But they're still fixated because they've seen this bike or a friend had this bike or maybe even they had this bike and if they didn't ride or they did ride, but they're fixated by it because they're emotionally attached to it because it brings them to a certain time in life mm-hmm. that they were excited about, you know? Yeah. And, you know, that does bring out passion in people. And, and you do want that from a bike, you know? Yeah. You do totally. want a bike to be an individual, I feel like. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, mean, I, I, remember, I remember Hoffman saying, I mean, the bike is my extension of my body. Yeah. You know, and I say that all the time. That bike is your extension. And you want to feel connected with it. Yeah. Because you do become one when you're riding it. 
and you're that's one thing I've noticed only recently again with coaching but when you're riding you're just so present to the moment but a lot of times when we have conversations and communicate to other people we're thinking oh what's for lunch yeah oh, I need to do this by tomorrow oh but there's nothing like that when you're riding when you're if you can live your life like you ride you'll have a powerful life yeah because you're so present to the moment the minute you start thinking of something else you're going to crash <laughs> it's true it's so true so if you can do that in life and that's what I try and do now with Harold be present to the moment I have a timeline right out to 2020 right now of everything we're dropping over the next three to five years but I need to be present now so they'll come out with the next and then the next yeah like in two, so December 2012 you know you're already in halfway through 2013 but because of 2012 December 2012 you've already done the work for launching 2014 which will come out six months later yeah so that whole range was pretty much already done I came in on Alan's tail as well as Chris um, and Derek he used to work here and uh, so that work had already been done so my influence on the brand really didn't show until the 2015 range which really is 2014 we sort of launched that so yeah. Um, it takes about 12 to 18 months before you see my vision become a reality in the product. Yeah, and one, one thing I feel like Harold didn't lose is they always still had very influential writers through that oh, whole yeah. time. And, I mean, right now, I mean, that the Harold team, I feel like, is the closest to what it's felt like, you know, in 88. Yeah. I mean, every there, there's so many dudes on Haro, Mike Gray, Tyler Fangle, you know... Jason Watts, Dennett. I mean, every dude is so just... I mean, he could be the main dude on any team out there. He could be yeah. almost the number one yep. guy. I mean, of course, Dennis. And you got Tyler. Uh, I mean, Mike Gray. Mateus. Yeah, yeah Mateus. It's like all these dudes could be the the face of a brand, pretty much. Yep. You know, just like the team back in 88. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Wilkerson... You know, was Joe Johnson still on 88? Um, I, he was on in 87. I'm trying to remember if he was on in 88. But Blythers, Blyther, Hoffman. Hoffman. I mean, all these dudes could have been the face of their own brand. You know, if yeah. you would have taken, you know, Hoffman and put him in, the, in general, he would have been, okay, that's Hoffman's brand. If you'd have take, yeah. taken Ron and put, put him at, you know, GT or Skyway or, you know, he would have been the mm -hmm. face of that brand. And I feel... Like, the team's like that again. Yeah. So when you came in, I mean, when you were looking at the writers, I mean, there's plenty of, like, inspiration to build around these guys. It wasn't... Yeah. I mean, that was a part that didn't really need fixed. Yeah. But there was still a lot you could grow off of those those guys. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, it was hard when I first came in. And, I, again, something else, uh, it's not my words, but I never fire anyone. They fire themselves. Yeah. You know, if you're a pro rider, that's your job. So just do your job. Look at your contract. If you signed that contract, just live within the contract. Everyone on Harrow, I never want to let anyone go. They let themselves go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was a bit of a shuffle at the beginning. But, um, yeah, it, it was a touchy one. But it was like the new face of Harrow, you need 
people like the young Tyler Fernangles, the young Jason Watts, the young Mike Grays, those eager guys that are out riding, the guys that are on social media all the time, um, promoting themselves, promoting the brand. I want the guys that are working, not the guys that are sitting around expecting this, expecting more and more. And and it's sad, but you need to go for the guys that have got that social following. Yeah. That are selling you bikes. Um, I mean, Nyquist. We forgot to mention Nyquist. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, 19 years on the company. Yeah. I mean, I mean next year. Yeah, he's still... I mean, he won Dreamline last year. It's yeah. Like, he's... He just brought out that killer edit that Christian Regal filmed. Yeah. I mean, you know... But he is still in. I always say I say Nyquist. I always tell people Nyquist is like the mid school's Dennis McCoy. Like he's just yeah. gonna, he just keeps aging. I mean, Ryan's younger than me, so when people are like Ryan's so Shit. old, I'm like, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, but, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like he hasn't slowed down really no. at all. You know, I mean, the stuff he did on that latest edit. I mean, like. So no foot can can nothings he's done, but I've never seen him do no foot can can bar spins. Yeah, I'd never seen that before. So yeah. there was a few tricks in there that he's still pushing the limits. Yeah. He loves pushing himself, um, and that's what we're saying about Matt Hoffman. It's not about the money; he's still pushing himself. Yeah, I mean Matt. That's another story. Yeah, he. <laughs> so yeah, back to our team. Yeah, <laughs> current team. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with the new destinations I like to call it um, not just changing the direction of the bike but changing the f- face of Harrow with the team at, at the same time you know um, Dennis Mc- Dennis McCoy is on there yeah uh, he was on it in the 80s he really is that vintage legend guy although he he never wants to be uh, an old did- school rider he's an all school rider and do you feel like, since we're touching on Dennis, do you feel like... Because I feel like there's starting to be a little bit of resurgence. Like, as BMX is getting older, mm-hmm. uh, people are riding longer. You know, it's not like in the 80s where, you know, somebody's like, oh, I'm 23, I'm out of the game. Yeah. You know? and But there's just riders that are riding... You know, there's riders that are in their 50s that are still riding. Yeah. What, what, what do you think... Do you think there's an importance with still connecting with a rider who might be 35 and older... You know, like we have Dennis, yep. Mike Dominguez, Blyther, you know, even like Nyquist, even though Nyquist and, and uh, you know, Dennis still are riding full pro level. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think the importance of is still having riders that connect with people that are, you know, still out there riding? Or like a rider like me, like I appreciate, you know, I, all the ledge stuff and everything that's out. Like I, I was there. I, I rode that. Yeah. But it's hard for me to connect with a younger rider on that level, like looking and be like, I'm into this dude. Mm-hmm. When I still know there's guys out there that I looked up to that ride. Yeah. And I, I kind of want, it's like, I need, I need the media or I need social media or something to feed me that to keep me excited. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what do you think the importance of that is with, with a company, especially one with like Haro with, with uh, the history you guys have? Wow. <laughs> That's a massive one. Um, so, the, the crossover, you mean? Like yeah. with the young and the old? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like this is a time in BMX where that's starting to be apparent. Like, there's such an yeah. age gap of yeah. riders that are still riding where even in 94, like, 
an old guy was like 30 at the most. Oh, at totally. The, at the most. You know, you my buddies that were 28 and 94, I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh, this guy's old. And now, I mean, that, that gap is just widening more and more. And it feels like BMX, just media and everything, doesn't really know how to pull it all in. Like, we're all one family, but... They're still need, you know, everybody's still mm-hmm. going to focus on who they want to focus on. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, to bring it all together, I think it made sense when, um, again, it's back at Xavier Mendez's house, but I have lunch with Dennis McCoy, and he speaks about lineage. Yeah. You know, creation from its ancestor. So creating something old that's new. And that's like Dennis McCoy, his new master that's coming yeah. out in March next year and Jason Watts want to write it yeah actually not want to write it writing it and so that's bringing them together I mean that's 30 plus years 30 years apart those yeah. two guys but massive fan Jason Watts a massive fan of Dennis McCoy yeah and those guys can write together so you've got that in the product you've got that in the writing you've got that in the athletes I mean, I think that's that's my vision is really bringing almost the father son, the old school new school together. Yeah. Um. I mean, I've seen some criticism that people think you know since I've come in here, I've emphasised a lot on old school, which is completely wrong. I mean, that's four percent of my work. Yeah. Well, five percent, ninety-five percent is all the destinations bikes, all the new bikes, but the five percent is the old the old bikes yeah um, but they do take a hundred percent commitment and execution because if you come out with the wrong weld or the wrong plate or the wrong angle there's a guy out there that's gonna they're, they're gonna pick it and honestly I anyone can pick my work but I am my worst critic I mean I, I am so hard on myself bringing out if it's a new lineage product or if it's a new SD fork for Dennis. Um, anything we bring out, I'm I'm my worst critic. I want it to be the best, but number one priority, I want it to be the safest product. Yeah. I don't want anyone getting hurt on anything I've visualized. I'm no engineer. I just visualize this stuff and then I get the guys to design it. Yeah. But um, I mean, I know that's a long, winded answer. Oh no, it's it's fine. It's, it's really really I mean, looking at two age groups. Pretty much even three. You can almost... Dennis could be, almost, be a grandfather. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, one of my best friends is 49 who still rides. And he's he's a grandfather. Yeah. You know, and he's still... You know, it's not like he's riding when I met him when he was 24. Mm-hmm. But he's still he's still riding and he's still passionate about it. And yep. he's still... You know, he wants what he wants. You know? Yeah. And sometimes... And that's what I'm talking about. Like, with, sometimes with BMX it feels like in the present day... Some you know, it's weird with you know three to four generations of riders trying to pinpoint each generation and give them what they want. You yeah. know, yeah. And it seems it's like tough. It, it seems like tough. it could be a task. Totally. And Shad, honestly, I love that. And um, we spoke about this before, but I've never stopped riding. Yeah. Since 1982. Yeah. So I mean, I haven't ridden in a month because my neck and my back, but. I'm riding. I'm still riding this year. Did a little edit this year. Yeah. And it's so important to know what happened in the 80s, what happened in the 90s, what happened in 2000s, and then what's happened current. 
I mean, I can go to the skate park and actually ride with little Jaden Covert yeah. down, down the street. He's only 15 years old and still have that buzz on what he rides. And then he'll see what an older guy rides. And it's completely different styles. But the amount of kids that can do flare whips and can't do a fufanu just baffles me. <laughs> I mean, most of them don't even know what a fufanu is. Yeah. No, I... <laughs> but... You know, you and I, we remember the day we pulled our first Fufanus. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I still remember the ramp. I can visualize it. I remember it was my Air Master in 91. And it's... I think mine was on Wilkerson Airlines. I had a backyard quarter pipe, and I remember... Yeah. yeah. That trick took me a while. It's still... The Fufanu and the 540 tire tap, I learned on the same weekend. I I learned them pretty close at the same time, too, so... Wow. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's important. You can't... You can't be this guy. I'm, I'm certainly not this guy in, a, in an office, um, not knowing what's going out there in BMX. And, you know, I believe we're a company that, that needs to be ahead and almost create the, um, the trend. Yeah. Because kids don't know what they want. You have to make something you know, that and, and really I feel entices like, them. Especially now. Like, I feel like when we're younger, it's so weird because I feel like when I was younger, you know, companies would dictate who the superstar is. Mm-hmm. I mean, they w- there were there was riders out there that were superstars that shouldn't have been superstars, but the company would still dictate that they were a superstar or the magazines were. Yep. And then I feel like as things died down, it was dictated a little more by uh, a rider's soul, you know, his writing mm-hmm. and stuff. And then I feel like with social media and stuff nowadays and how powerful certain social medias are, um, you can dictate who a superstar is again. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't have any... That's just how business works. I don't mm-hmm. really have a problem with that. I mean, because the kid is into somebody. He's, you know, as a business standpoint, he's going to buy something. You know, it's like you can't stop how that's going to happen. Yep. But it it almost feels like it's kind of came full circle again, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I get a lot of influence from Apple products. You know, you don't go in checking the best price or whatever. You just need that new iPhone. I mean, I just got the the 6, 128 gig, and now the 6S is out. And you're just like, I'm not going to go and get it. Yeah. But I learned that from, like, Apple products. You just need it. And so that's what I really wanted to put out with, with the new Harrow range of bikes and parts and everything. It's my job as a brand manager to create the demand. It's my job to sell to the consumer. Not to consult to the retailer or the distributor. Because, honestly, the retailer doesn't want to stand on the floor for an hour talking about this bike that's for $300. They're going to make 40 bucks out of it. Yeah. And they could walk out of the shop and go down the street just because they're getting $20 discount. They need to come into your shop going, oh, my God, I need this bike. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to create with this company again. Because that's the way it was. I remember the first, and it's sitting on my desk right now, the black, blue, chrome Harrow Sport. And I still have my original one. But when I saw that in the ad, I was just like, oh my God, that that's like a Ferrari to me. I want that bike. Yeah. I, and I feel like, I mean, a lot of companies, the, the, in the 80s and even partially into the early 90s when some of the writer companies, writer-owned companies were coming out, I feel like that was a real thing. Like you saw something mm-hmm. and it, you were fixated by it. You were like, okay, I got to make this happen. Yeah. Um, 
like I remember the first time I saw a bully bike. Mm-hmm. Just the way RL marketed that company had really never been done at that time. You know, yeah. everything was so raw. The, I love the barbed wire. Yeah, you had Mark McKee doing the graphics. Um, the whole team, you know, he had the Dirt Bros on there, but there was Dominguez, and there was just such a like, I don't give a fuck attitude. But everybody on the team was so good, and you just saw that bike and where riding was going at the time, and I was like, I, I have to have this thing. You know, mm-hmm. like what do I have to do to get this bike? Because I'm gonna make it happen. Yep. And I mean, all there's so many bikes back then that you just would go in and they just fixate you. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, even I think BMX as a whole, like as an industry, did lose that for a time. You know, yeah. And. I do see kids coming back in the shop nowadays and they're starting to be fixated with bikes again. You know, yeah. they're they're like, a bike is more of an individual than just a lineup that you are just selling to somebody, you know? Because mm-hmm. I think for so long, price points and stuff are just dictating bikes instead of it just being like an individual bike where the kid, right before he even has the bike, has a connection with it. Like you're talking about being a part of you. Like he goes yep. in, he goes, it's like you've, you've lost your wallet and you're like, there, there it is. I, okay, I got to take this because yep. it's mine, you mm-hmm. know? And he just has to figure out how to get it again, you know? Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, as we said before, it is, it's that emotional buy, the emotional connection. And if you can get that with anything, if it's a t-shirt, if it's a band, you're going to buy that music on emotion. Yeah. And when you look at a BMX, I mean, you know, the way we feel when we see that bully, yeah. Or when I see if I see a brand new Airmaster or Streetmaster or whatever, I'm just like, oh my god, the emotions come out. Yeah. And and that was another reason why I started to rebuild. I mean, over 20 years it's taken me, but rebuild the history of Harrow because every bike in that timeline has emotion. So, even the bad ones will bring back that bad emotion. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your Harrow collection a little, since we you're kind of touching on that. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, it's pretty insane. Yeah, I got a couple. Uh, I mean, I'm a super big vintage collector, and how many how many how many Haros do you have right now? So there's there's 68 complete bikes built, and I've got about 18 frame sets. And what time period does it really span? Like, what do, what do you focus on? So I'm working on. So I finished my 1982 to 1993. Um, I'm actually still building an 84 Master, an 85 Sport, and an 86 Master right now. So those three are, are getting built. Um, but now I'm really focusing on 94 to 2006. Yeah. So I wasn't a big fan of a lot of the bikes there. And I, I rode for Harrow in Australia in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I remember the Dave Mira bikes and, uh, you know, I had the Mira Pros, had a Bactrio, the Nyquist bike once. Um, and they were just tanks but now buying them back I'm getting even those emotions from 15, it was only 15 years ago Yeah. but I want to for people to see the timeline of Harrow um, from 1982 to 2006 after 2006 I mean I, I'm not going to collect them I'm hoping Harrow could maybe collect them Yeah. because it's important to have every single pro model so that's now, that's what I never said before. Every bike I collect is the highest, uh, the highest high end bike of yeah. that year. So the 1982 Freestyler with uh, graphite tufts on it, 
I've got the 1983 with graphite tufts, um, and then I really pinpoint to the 82 having the 82 graphites, the 83 having the 83 graphites. They have different shaped flanges, um, built with Campagnolo hubs. I mean, they're not cheap wheels. Yeah. Um, so every bike, it's either the Team Master or the Team Sport, and then the Dave Mira Pro, the Nyquist Pro, all the way through is always the high-end sealed three-piece crank bikes Yeah. that I really work on. Um, well, you've been going around collecting these, like, and I, I know this from my personal experiences, what's like the craziest thing, that, what's the craziest experience or how you put yourself out there to get a part? Because I've went way out of my way, you know, in desperation or in frantic mode to yep. try to get a part before somebody else does. And, and I know some some of the listeners are going to totally get this, and some people hearing it be like, "These guys are are batshit crazy," <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, I know when you find something that you know is super rare, you might not be able to find it again. Like, what what's the extent? Like, what's something you know that you're like, "Yeah, I did this," and I might not. Yeah, be, it does seem a bit crazy. Yeah. I mean, so the craziest part, most expensive. I mean, I paid two and a half thousand dollars for a set of graphites, which. I mean, they're 95% perfect. Yeah. 82 graphites, which I think I still think to this day I could sell them for easily $3,000. Yeah. Um, crazy price was probably $800 for a NOS set of snake bellies. Um, $250 for a pair of Oakley B1B grips. Best buy ever. I found a pair of MKS graphite 916 pedals in the box for $6. Oh, wow. And, and it was in this old shop in country Victoria in Australia. I found this so much stuff. And he still had 80s price tags on all these parts. And I bought them like, I mean, probably 2008. Yeah. And he had all the parts were still with 80s price, like $6. Um, I got a Hatta headset, I think, for $4. All this stuff. And, at the, and I was a sales rep at the time. So at the end, I was like, so... Could I get it at wholesale? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just probably picked up $2,000 worth of stock for about 85 bucks. Yeah. And I'm still being Scottish. Can you give me a discount? You know? <laughs> and he's like, oh no, I don't think so. And everything else. So anyway, I left there feeling just on fire. $6 for a set of MKS graphite pedals in 916. Yeah. Um, decals are probably another one that I've spent a bit too much on. Um, I remember my ex-wife going mental at me um, when I was bidding against, I don't know who, maybe a listener can tell us, but there was a set of 1990 um, Zolotone Master decals yeah. on eBay. This was probably 2008 maybe, also 2007, and they're black to purple. And back then, yeah, it was 2007, and I paid, I think it was $186 for them. <laughs> Oh my um, God. back then and my wife is just going mental at me I had to have my friend Nick Watts who amazing flatlander Nicky Watts he actually had to bid on my behalf so my wife wouldn't find out <laughs> she eventually found out when we started to we traced the artwork every single imperfection Shad I think you know me now I love my imperfections yeah. every single imperfection on that artwork I recreated with Nick and then had our Taiwanese factory at that time when I had my first company, Forgotten, which I like to forget about. Um, I had the factory 
screen print those decals again. Yeah. 100% legit. Like the ones I just gave you for your red master. Yeah. Um, so, but I actually contacted Jim Ford at the time as well as with Tony Degalaro. Uh, he was the brand manager at Harrow at the time. And I said, look, do you mind if I do this? Because you can't get this artwork. And so I just wanted to do it at the beginning for myself. But realizing that I had paid 186 bucks for the original decals. That there's a market for it. There's a market for it. And when people saw my bikes going up, going, holy shit, dude, you're, where are those decals from? Yeah. So people were hitting me up and hitting me up and hitting me up. And then I realized, hey, this could actually start funding my $800 snake belly tires. Yeah. Or, you know, my $6 MKS graphite pedals. <laughs> so, yeah, I started selling the decals. And, and I've told told people I mean I won't say how much I made but I made a lot of money out I mean of the, the, the the vintage in the collecting world is I mean some people in BMX know but there's a lot of money out there like yep. it's 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 a it's crazy it's, yeah. it's it's a whole it's a whole beast of its own like it's a it's a whole nother I mean BMX is a subculture yep. and then the, the collecting and stuff is a whole other subculture to its own totally and and then there's a rare breed like you and I that are collector riders yeah rooftop yeah um, uh, Jason Enns yeah you know like there's there's some people out there that Eben you know, Eben Krakow Eben you know they still ride so there are but they're the unique ones there's the there's the collectors that cruise around and you know and I have a lot of respect for them because they are they're, they they know a lot more than most of the companies and they're they're saving pieces of history exactly that are just getting trashed and then there's a few there's a few of us that are still riding that when we get on one of those vintage bikes feels really goofy oh yeah and I don't know what it's going to be like when we go out on our 89 Masters or Bash Guards and and uh and do a little edit or whatever because yeah, yeah just so the listeners be... know a few of us I think you, me, Jason Rooftop yeah uh, wait, we're waiting on them to finish bikes and we're, we're going to go uh, do a little edit yeah, we're going to try to do something and yeah. I, I don't I don't, I don't know be, how it's going to go that'll be fun I mean I'm actually going to build my original 89 I just showed you yeah I don't want to destroy any of my display bikes so I'll build my 89 up um, and totally just shred that again see how it feels yeah I'm I, just nervous of those quill stems the forks scare me more than anything oh my god those dropouts yeah I remember I won't even get into how much stuff <laughs> I, I destroyed but yeah I, I whenever I try to whenever I finish a bike I always try to go shoot a photo on it yeah because I even with my nitro bikes like I'm like oh you know I'm not gonna do a certain thing on it but I'll, I'll do an air just mm-hmm. to get a photo because I'm like it's a bike it's meant to be ridden yep. and I always want to kind of just go back to be like you know most time when you're done riding you're like how the how the fuck did I do what I did on that bike you know and it's funny because you can even go back 10 years if you go back to even a mid-school bike from 2005 2004 you know let's say I I jumped on a a terrible one progression I built a first gen Mm. progression I built on the shop um, and it had Primo Mobars. I kind of set it up after like Robbo's bike, you know, like pretty close to, mm-hmm. to what his was set up. And at the time, you were like that. I remember Justin Inman had one. I'm like, this is a super light bike. You know, it's all trails out. It, you know. Yep. And you, get, I got on the thing, 
and it just hurt my back. I could barely, you, know, you try to bunny hop it. Yeah. And you, that's not even, that's 10 years ago. The mm-hmm. bikes felt so much different. Yeah. You know, it's, you don't feel how much bikes change as they're going until you step back a little and you're just like, how did, yeah. how did you do that on that? And then you even jump back 30 more years mm-hmm. and it's even more amazing than what people did. Exactly. So it, it's, it's definitely ha- interesting how fast BMX progresses. And yeah. we don't even notice it. No. Exactly. I mean, it's like a blink of an eye. You don't even notice how much is changing around you on what you're riding. Yeah. And I think, you know, and that's where there's a strong connection, especially with the guys like, you know, in their 40s and stuff like that, late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s. There's a there's a connection because the guys that didn't stop riding in those darker days when BMX was supposedly dead, we're the ones that kept it alive yeah. all over the world. And there's like a brotherhood that's stronger than than any I know of, because there's just that much respect. Gone, man. You you kept flying the flag. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, there was no money in it. I do feel like that, and I really don't ever hope that there's another time like that in BMX because no. it it was bad. But I do feel like when you do, it was meet, the best years I felt. <laughs> it, it was for well, me personally, and yeah, I mean, but when you do meet someone that was really seriously riding between like 88 and 94 mm-hmm. you know when X Games came out like 96 or something 95 yep, 95 yeah um, but that that period in between there when you do meet someone and you do have a connection with them because you know that they were just one of a few at that time before yeah. before things built back up you know oh the slandering we used to get like oh grow up yeah you're still riding a BMX yeah that's not a real sport like it was like man the adrenaline I didn't need to drink alcohol I didn't need to take drugs the adrenaline I used to get from riding yeah and the contest when you go to contest back then yeah it was literally like everybody in the country would be at one little skate park and yeah it it was intense and it was about the atmosphere it wasn't about the prize money oh I don't think there was no it's prize money exactly first place you get 75 bucks pro or something yeah so I was stoked, I think, once at Barrow and Furnace, I won a t-shirt, and that, like, Jamie Bestwick was there, Sandy Carson, we were all down there, Andy Burke, and, um, yeah, I mean, but but by the end of the contest, you know, my whole t-shirt was ripped off anyway, so I was like, <laughs> this brand new t-shirt I just won was all ripped off, and it was, it was just about being there with your peers. Yeah, I remember the first, so I went to a couple, okay, big, you know, I went to a Marino Valley contest in the States yep. um, back in the day. I remember I went to the Worlds in 96, and just that whole experience, like we went over and stayed with Marcus Wilkie, because mm-hmm. um, he was a foreign exchange student in Oregon right. when he was in high school, so we went over and stayed with him for a summer, and uh, that contest in Cologne, I mean, it was just, it was so intense, like, I mean, it was like you were just meeting family members that you'd not seen for a while, Yeah, and I remember just going out to, to bars and just just dancing with all your friends and it was like I mean it was just a celebration of how much we all cared about BMX yeah and you took that excitement from that night and then everybody pushed it into the riding the next day oh yeah and it it really it really showed when you saw people ride at that time Mm -hmm. um, how much and I'm not saying people don't nowadays you know every generation just goes about things different I mean this is definitely not to take away from how amazing and how excited people are about BMX now. But yeah. I just remember that first contest because it was like probably right before the X Games mm-hmm. and 
you know, everybody from Europe was there and it was so just intense. Like you didn't even have to speak the same language as the person and you were just just screaming, screaming for him to just ride harder, you know? Yeah. I mean, you threw yourself at those contests. Oh gosh. I mean, it was, it was a a huck fest. I I mean, you would try shit you've never tried before. Here's a funny story (laughs) from that contest. So I was there with John Bristol. Yeah. And uh, were you at that contest? I wasn't. I just moved to Australia. Okay. So they had the rolling off the sub box of the mini ramp, and you'd hit this single dirt jump. It had a wood lip. And around that dirt jump, I remember the contest went, they had lights on it. So the lights weren't even that great. It was so sketchy because it was like kind of at nighttime. Yeah. You know, dust tonight. Thousands of people around this jump. I was blown away by how many people were at this contest. Like thousands of people. And people were just flinging themselves. Um, and my buddy John was riding Am, and uh, I remember he he was he wrecked on Vert earlier that day, and he was just like, "I'm going for it." Him and my buddy Eric were riding, and uh, he went for a 360 look back, and his hand came off because he was so tired, and it barrel rolled him, and he like just smashed on his back so hard. Oh no! So I had painkillers at that time because I had uh, cellulitis and a flesh eating bacteria in my leg, and <laughs> I almost actually lost my leg from it. Wow. Um, so I gave him some of the painkillers, and I think one of the dudes let him smoke a little bit of a spliff, you know, and he's like, I'm going to lay down, like, where they had the world's end. I think it's still in the same spot. It's by a freeway underpass. Yeah, it's still there. Yeah. Yeah. So he went to sleep under there, and I remember the French guys that night were partying so hard that they tipped over two porta potties. Mm. And it was by where John was sleeping, and he oh, was like, no. he was comatose. From smoking, he smoked, oh, no. he took some painkillers and just crashed, just was out. The sewage stuff went around his sleeping bag and he woke up to that in the morning just surrounded by porta potty sewage. Oh my god. <laughs> and the thing is, is though the energy at the contest was so good, yeah. he didn't even give a fuck the next morning. Yeah. He, he, he didn't, he just woke up, alright, mm-hmm. I think there was a faucet, cleaned himself off. Yeah, and just went back to riding. Like it was just like, I mean, yeah. we he got rid of the sleeping bag. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was kind of protected him a little bit. Like he, it was, it was around him, but it was like he was on his own little island. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, wow, yeah. I just remember something like that didn't even like ruin the mood of the contest no. for him. No. You know, he'd ate shit the night before. And he, he woke shit during the night. Yeah, there was shit around him during the night, and I think he woke up and still rode pretty decent in Amvert, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Man. It, it was definitely. Oh, just the best times. As I said, I loved I loved the 90s. What, so, let's talk, let's get into, like, I mean, you have pretty, like, you came from a pretty core group of dudes that are still, I feel, fairly influential in, in yeah. BMX. Yeah. Uh, So you're from Scotland, right? Yeah, so I I was born in Glasgow, um, and I moved to Dundee, which is on the other side. So I was in the West Coast, moved over to the East Coast, um, and when I was 14, uh, I was adopted at 10 years old, so I had a colourful background before, but yeah, BMX saved my life. I mean, that's the number one, seriously. If I didn't have BMX, I would be dead. Yeah. And that's... Yeah, I mean that's a fact because the way I was as a younger child, I was I was all about you know violence and fire. I set my school on fire. I I stabbed my dad. 
Um, I got locked up for three years. Um, the pretty violent little childhood. Um, but when I was 10, in 1982, I went to live with foster parents. They took me to see E.T. Yeah. I saw E.T. like like we all did. And I was just like, oh my God, I want to do that. I want to jump on police cars. I want to jump all over. And, and I got a bike. You're like, I just want to run from the cops. I need that bike to yeah, run from the cops totally. after I light something on fire. So, you know, that was, that, that was almost... For me, that was the meaning of life. Um, I got my own freedom. I had that BMX bike, and I was just a little daredevil on that bike. So um, that—that's—that's that's when I noticed the difference. But when I moved to Dundee, um, there was a, a world champion up there called Scott Carroll. Yeah. Um, you remember Scott? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so Lee and I talked about Scott. Oh, wow. A little last night. So. Okay. So Scott, I met Scott, and I'd never seen real life on a vert ramp I'd never seen a vert ramp before uh, we had made little kick turns and quarter pipes like six foot quarter pipes and Scott had this nine foot half pipe yeah and so this is probably 88 now so I'm like 16 that's when I got to meet Scott and, and he was riding for Harrow at the time and uh, he was just blasting and so he was a massive influence on me um, he taught me how to abubica and rock walk drop in so every time I ride because he died in 97 every time I ride my first drop in is always a rock walk drop in no matter what ramp I ride yeah apart from 14 foot vert ramp at Woodward <laughs> yeah I've dropped it a rock walk drop in on a, a 11 foot but yeah I don't know maybe do that for my 44th birthday we'll see <laughs> um, but uh, yeah so Scott was Scott was uh, world champion in his age group yeah and uh, so he was my big influence and then uh the guys from Aberdeen would come down, and that was like Grant Smith, who owns, owns BSD. Owns BSD. Um, you know, Sandy Carson, who started Federal Bikes, and now he lives in Austin. Yeah, I mean, down there, and Sandy's absolute legend. And yeah, what he did for Scotland and BMX and everything. He was in the America. first. He was the first Scottish pro that I heard of. I remember when he came over, and he started riding for Standard, and you saw a few. I remember saw a few video ads of him. Yeah. And then uh, when Style Cats came out, his mm-hmm. part in Style Cats, yeah, like you saw the ads, and I was like, okay, you know. Tech. Then I saw his part in Style Cats, and f- for that time, that part blew me away. I mean, it was yeah. just like, whoa, you know, where this dude. It was such a good mix of yep. everything, you know. Tech mini ramp. I think he had a little bit of trails. The street riding was good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that part. Yeah, he does. He does everything. Yeah. He still does everything. He's oh got yeah. So he's got so much skill. You know, behind the lens and in front of the lens. I yeah. Mean, got so much respect for Sandy, um, what he did and what he does. Um, Andy Burke was an absolute, I mean, jeez. He was a maniac on a bike. I mean, at the King of Concrete, he would beat Jamie Beswick. Yeah. You know, he would when like, he was your, Andy Burke was our Dennis McCoy. You know, he could ride flat, he could ride vert, he could ride street, he could ride park, bowls. He would win. That's what the, the King of Concrete was. It was those five disciplines. Yeah. And you had to ride every discipline to win the King of Concrete. Oh, wow. Okay. And he would win. I think he won. He definitely won two. I'd say he won three in a row. But I know he won two in a row. And so Andy Burke. Andy grew up. Uh, Amos Burke. Amos Flatlander. Yeah. He rode for S&M. Still, I think, is flowed by Chris. Um, and, a- and Amos Burke was still a really good street rider, too. Totally. Yeah. Amos would throw some shit. And and then we would meet all you know Paul Robertson as well as another good friend of mine from Aberdeen met him, 
around that time as well, like the late 80s. Uh, he runs a he owns a shop with Mark Strictly BMX down yeah. in Melbourne. So uh, yeah, it was funny. It was like you know he moved from Scotland to Melbourne, and I just go, "Awesome, you're here!" And then I moved to California. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there were, there was a lot of. I mean, I wish I could mention everyone that I grew up with in Scotland. But it was it was a very um, influential scene at the time. It was totally. But every time we would build ramps, they would be burnt. They would set set alight. Who would you set know, a light? Oh, idiots on the street that would come and set fire to our ramps and stuff like that. So it sounds like you guys were all lighting fires back then. I know. I didn't light fire to a ramp. <laughs> I'd never light fire to a ramp. Um, but then we would go down to England and holy shit. So we would go down with uh, Team Sano, they were yeah. called, you know. And uh, another boy, um, Danny Boone and uh, John O'Neill, they were from Kirkcaldy. We would all go down. And it was weird because, yeah, back then there was no cell phones. Um, I can't forget David Frame. I mean, oh, Framey, yeah. holy shit. He was a big influence on my life. Um, so we would, there would be, in Scotland, if you can imagine this map, there would be up the north, the Aberdeen boys. Then they would come down. You would meet the Dundee boys. You would go through the little town of Kirkcaldy. You would go to Edinburgh. You would, Glasgow was on the west coast. You would sort of merge and come together and then head straight down to England. And... Yeah, so basically the the whole Team Sano crew would, would be heading down to England to go to these contests. And yeah, the English, I think, were a, a little bit intimidated by some of the, the Scottish antics. You know, we'd get drunk and then ride contests, um, you know, up speed and ride a contest. <laughs> <laughs> like riding a contest on speed, holy shit. Um, but yeah, that's when we sort of got to know, got re- really good friends with Zach Shaw. Yeah. Uh, John Taylor, Stu Dawkins, um, Jamie. Back then, you know, I got to know him, but he was almost his himself. He kind of had his own he, little crew, he, didn't he? He did, yeah. Um, and that so that was the early nineties, and that's when sort of mini ramp street riding was getting big, and vert ramps were dying down. Yeah. So yeah, Simon, I think went to a couple of contests. Simon Tabron, but I never really become friends with Simon until in the US. Um, and then yeah same with Jamie and Mark Atkins there was a lot of good guys down in England that were killing it um, I mean Zach Shaw I mean that, that, that guy was doing 360 backflips in 93 93-94 it's so insane to me how many just amazing vert riders have came out of the UK the UK it's 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 I mean there's always your super influential US vert riders I mean there's a bunch yeah but then for a piece of land that's the size of California yeah uh, who's came out of that and left just enormous marks mm-hmm. on BMX especially with vert riding yeah I mean it, it's it's crazy oh, like exactly it, it's it's, I mean, it's insane yeah you look yeah Lee Reynolds was the first guy I think that came across here Craig Campbell Craig Campbell I mean, I mean Craig Campbell came over here uh, who do you ride for before Skyway was a uh Something pro line or uh, yeah, yeah, that power not was power light pro. What's it pro line? Uh, pro light. I forgot what company it is. Somebody will correct us. Damn, you can look it up. Uh, but I he know. came over and he still did good uh, riding pipeline, which yep. a lot of even American pros. If you didn't live down there, you know you couldn't even compete in one of those contests because you just couldn't. That bowl was just so intense. 
Exactly. And I, yeah. he still did he still did well in the contest. Oh, totally. I mean he killed it and I still remember and I think even today people are just blown away that Craig did that five forty wall ride. Oh. That I mean, the five forty wall ride I mean, that was the eighty nine two hit meet the, it was the first meet, meet the, the street. street. Yep. Um that was no one no one even really touched that trick again until Ruben did one on Euro Road Fools. And Craig it was, Campbell Prolite. Prolite. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it went from Craig Campbell doing a 540 wall ride in 89 yep. to Ruben doing one on Euro Road Fools. And that's that was the time span. That's how ahead of the trick. You know, people do them riding flat walls now. But no one had even really... I mean, I'm sure somebody did one, but no one had... It really seemed before it started picking up again, it would almost been like 12... To fifteen years. I yeah. mean, I can't remember when Euro Road Fools exactly came out. I know it was right around. Was it 2000, 2000 2001. Yeah, something so, like that. Okay, it's like eleven years, but yeah, that's a that's a big gap for how far ahead he was. And he was like, I think on an ozone with Tufts. Yeah, I remember that sticker. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, I mean, there was there, there was a lot of talent, and still a lot of talent coming yeah. out. You know, Chris Kyle. You know, Harry Main. I mean, Alexanichi. Oh. Man, and I'm loving like you know, just what's coming out. Every country has their own sort of style. It, it's true, yeah, which is, which is amazing. So it's um, but again, it's and it's so diverse, which which is awesome. So I'm proud. I'm proud to be Scottish, and um, I'm proud of the whole UK scene. And I spent 18 years in Australia, and I'm I'm proud of what what's coming out of there. You know, um, it, it's it's fun when you've been in riding for so long. I mean, those, like, I'd say the United States, Canada, you know, UK, Germany, and uh, Australia, you've, you've seen their niches on it. But, yeah. you know, since the late 90s, you know, you've seen Spain start, you'd seen their style emerge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even with, like, Simone Baracco, you know, you're starting to see it. You, you start seeing country's little styles and and where it's coming from them and it's kind of interesting to watch you know oh totally i mean and then you think i mean the way everybody forgets is like how gnarly the south american riders are yeah i mean you guys see south america's the japanese flatland yeah you see and japan it's like the flatland culture there is like it seems like almost the main culture you know um you know i'll be curious to see riders come out of china here sooner i mean you even see russian riders they're I remember going to Russia in 2001, mm-hmm. and it was the funniest thing. We were riding a, a park that was in Gorky Park. Yeah. Um, and it had a vert ramp and a few street things, and we were there for a stuntman contest. Mm-hmm. And there were kids that would show up with old school bikes. There were kids that would show up with old school bikes and, and ride the vert ramp, and they had leathers on, and they looked like they were from, like, 1986. But then there were kids that would have, because I think the distribution then was horrible, would have like a redline triple X, yeah, and be trying grinds, and they wouldn't coerce, they wouldn't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went there, and I remember it's like me, Walter Perringer, John Bristol, and a few people, and we were showing kids how to grind down ledges and stuff. And then like, you know, six years later, you uh, you start watching web edits of like, you know, dudes doing hang five the tail whips off of ledges and stuff, Damn. and just how fast BMX has progressed in that country. Totally, you know, and it. It's just crazy that you can see each country starting to put a mark on their own style of writing, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's amazing. And, and like, 
you know, when you're looking at countries, I saw what was going on in the mid nineties, um, like the whole standard crew that was going on there. Yeah. And then Clint Miller was up in Brisbane, Australia, or down in Australia. Yeah. Um, riding exactly like that. And yeah. It was just amazing seeing that that had that follow through and, as well. I mean, the Germans at that time were mm-hmm. like the Dragonfly guys. Oh my. Oh my gosh. gosh. Alex Bender. Yeah. He that dude was. He was a monster. Man. He was a monster, you know? Um, yeah, so it, it's definitely fun to see... I mean, BMX is touching more more places across the globe, you know? And exactly. And that, I, I've done some talks in schools and colleges and things like that, and, and to kids that ride BMX. And I'm like, you know, you commit to that jump the way you do. You can commit to your homework. You can commit to your relationships the same way you'll be very successful. Yeah. And it's amazing because you commit 100%, but then you do a half-assed job at your job or your homework. I mean, I would never think like that when I was a kid. Yeah. But now if I reference it, I've become friends with a, a, a pilot, actually, Derek Spicer, over in England. He flies the Dreamliners. Yeah. And he was here last month, and he actually said when he flies the Dreamliner, he pretends he's flying his bike. Oh, wow. He flies the plane as if he's riding his bike and he was explaining this to Hoffman because Hoffman loves flying Yeah, and he's telling him how he takes it off and, and he looks for the landing so he looks out of the cockpit flying this Dreamliner looks for the landing and he just turns his neck and pulls the plane around and you're just like wow seriously and he goes yeah I'm a great pilot due to my riding Yeah, and he actually rode for rally in 84 and John Pova took his spot on the rally team <laughs> And then, so he met Pova last month for the first time since 1984. Wow. So John Pova's like, Derek Spicer? Really? Oh, my God. So I don't know why I went off on that tangent, but it's about yeah, but it's committing. A fun, it's a fun story, and that's yeah. what we're here for. It's and, like, yeah, and committing with your writing can take you anywhere in life. It really can. I mean, I'm a kid that lived in the slums of Glasgow, and now I've traveled around the world over 18 times. And I'm the brand manager for Harold. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. Do you want a coffee? Uh, I don't drink coffee, but I mean, we, we could go grab some lunch now or something. Yeah, mate. That'd be awesome. I feel like that was a good thing to end it on. Sweet. All right. Hey, thank you very Thanks, much. Brother. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, just heads up that Dig BMX and us both have some uh, new merch up on our web stores that you could go check out. Um, and if you haven't rated us over on iTunes, you should go over there and do that. I mean, it really helps out, and I really appreciate it. So until next time, thanks.